to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of Sutherland and Her Majesty's Advocate. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 32. As we begin this episode, I should note that we will be indirectly dealing with some issues around paedophilia. So if that is potentially disturbing for you, then it might be worth skipping this episode. The reason that I say indirectly related is because we will be looking at the work of so-called paedophile hunters. These are groups of private individuals who pretend to be children online in order to smoke out paedophiles and eventually have them arrested by the police. In this particular case, the paedophile hunter created a fake profile on a dating app using a photo of a 13-year-old boy. The appellant in this case, Sutherland, entered into conversation with the decoy, who even stated that he was only 13. This did not deter Sutherland, who sent a sexually explicit image to the decoy and arranged to meet up with him. Of course, at the meeting there was no 13-year-old boy, only the group of paedophile hunters who remained with the appellant until the police arrived. In order to help the police, the paedophile hunters furnished them with copies of the communications via the dating app, including the sexually explicit image, as evidence. Her Majesty's Advocate charged Sutherland with a range of sexual offences, but Sutherland, in turn, challenged the admissibility of the evidence that was being used against him. The basis for his argument was that the evidence was obtained covertly, without authorisation under the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Scotland Act 2000, and without authorisation or reasonable suspicion of criminality, in violation of his rights, under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the right to private life. This argument was dismissed by the courts in Scotland, but the High Court of Justiciary allowed a final appeal to be made to the Supreme Court to consider the human rights arguments, and so that is where we pick things up. These arguments can be helpfully split into two questions for the justices to answer. Firstly, whether Article 8 is interfered with by use of the communications on the dating app as part of a public prosecution of the appellant. If there was an interference, it follows that the interference would have to be justified in line with at least one of the conditions set out in Article 8, Paragraph 2. The problem that the justices had with this was that the rights under Article 8 have to sit in the context of the general schema for protecting human rights. In other words, the Convention also has an important role to play in the protection of children from sexual exploitation. This isn't a question of surveillance by the state, and so the balancing act is one that takes place between two private individuals. Naturally, when it comes down to deciding between protecting a paedophile or protecting children, the Supreme Court was always going to come down on the side of protecting children. Furthermore, the little-known Article 17 of the ECHR prohibits the abuse of human rights, and clearly that is what would be happening if Article 8 was used to protect Sutherland. Another consideration that is a part of this first question is whether the appellant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in relation to the communications. We know that the messages were exchanged between Sutherland and the decoy, and that there was no pre-existing relationship between the two from which an expectation of privacy might arise. During the period of communication itself, any demand by the appellant to swear the fictitious 13-year-old to secrecy was not going to stand up in court because it would not be unreasonable for a child to share the messages with a parent 
or other responsible adult if they did become concerned. Sutherland had a reasonable expectation of privacy so far as surveillance by the state went, but could not have the same expectation when it came to the discretion of the actual recipient of the messages. Following on from this, when the communications were passed on to law enforcement, there is no reason for the police to treat them as confidential, especially if they could be used as part of the investigation of a serious crime. The second question asked of the justices as part of this appeal is what positive obligation the state has to protect the interests of the appellant. In other words, the state has a duty to actively protect the private life of individuals, including Sutherland, and that is undermined when private correspondence is used by a public prosecutor for the state. As you can probably imagine, this line of reasoning didn't hold much water either. In fact, the obligation on the state is almost the exact opposite to what the appellant suggests, as it is responsible for upholding the criminal law and thereby prosecuting sexual crimes against children to the fullest extent that it is able to do so. Article 8 arguably goes so far as to say that Her Majesty's Advocate is required to make use of the correspondence as part of a criminal trial. So when we come to our breakdown of this case, it's really difficult to try and be objective because of the heinous nature of the crime. It would be very easy to just throw up your hands and say, you know what, you've forfeited your human rights, but we don't do that no matter how much the judges might have been tempted. If Sutherland had been subjected to torture, then he would have had a case because the prohibition on torture under Article 3 of the Human Rights Convention is absolute. However, the right to a private life is not absolute, and so it is necessary to carry out a balancing act. It wasn't exactly difficult for the Supreme Court in the end to decide that the protection of children ought to override the legal rights of a paedophile, but it is still important that they did so. In fact, the decision takes on much more importance in recent times as it was reported last week that the government is considering pulling out of the European Convention on Human Rights. This is not to say that if the convention was scrapped then all of a sudden paedophiles would run rampant, but these proceedings are a good reminder that human rights law has developed over time to deal with a wide range of situations. Critics often allege that the case law leads to perverse results, but that just doesn't hold up to scrutiny, and generally means that they don't get the result that they wanted all along. Politics at the moment is extraordinarily turbulent, but human rights provide something of a safe harbour and likely have the staying power to outlast all of us. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the music. I would like to say a special thanks this week to Imogen HG on um, iTunes for leaving a five-star review. Um, she discovered the YouTube channel and then found the podcast via that. Um, so thank you very much for that very kind review. And remember, if you do have time to leave a review yourself, it is very helpful and helps us just to get noticed in the various iTunes charts. I was on the charts this week and noticed that we were above Jacob Rees-Mogg's podcast, so I don't think that that's a terrible thing. Um, so thank you very much to everyone who helps support us. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!